Congregation, turn again with me to Romans 8, the chapter we read, and let's read once more verses 31 and 32. 31 and 32 of Romans 8, where the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, What shall we then say to these things? And of course, that refers to verse 30 as well. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We already briefly meditated on that at the table, but I want to focus on that once more, because these verses encapsulate the extraordinary truth that is set before us in this entire chapter, this amazing chapter of Scripture, which has been called the Mount Everest of revealed truth, the most extraordinary articulation of the gospel and what is so powerfully set before us in those verses, what the privileges are of the people of God. That's why Paul asked the question in holy amazement, what shall we say to these things? These things that God has predestinated a people to be saved, that He calls them he justifies them, and He will ultimately glorify them. And how, how can this be? If, and then, but He says, if God be for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? And that is indeed the privilege of God's children, that for Christ's sake, God is for us rather than against us. That in Christ we are reconciled with God. We are reconciled with God because He did not spare His own Son, as was set before us visibly this morning, but delivered Him. The Son of His eternal love delivered Him to be a sacrifice for sin so that God, on the basis of that finished work, can freely bestow all the blessings of salvation. And that's why there is no greater privilege than to know that this Savior is my Savior. This is ultimately the only comfort in both life and death. And so, with God's help in this hour of reflection, as we reflect on what transpired this morning, we will consider the remarkable opening question and answer of our Heidelberg Catechism, and so please turn to Lord's Day 1, and we will read that opening question and answer. And the question is, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with His precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation." And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. And so, congregation, in this famous opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have an extraordinary and powerful summary of the essential truths of the gospel of what this only comfort in life and death is. And of course, with this, I am beginning an exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism. But because this is an hour of reflection, I do not want to spend too much time on 
the Heidelberg Catechism and why Article 68 of our church order stipulates that one of the services each Sunday be the so-called doctrinal sermon. I hope to do that next week, the Lord's willing, when we consider the second question of Lord's Day 1. In other words, how do I become a partaker? What do I need to know in order to enjoy this only comfort in life and death? Let me just quickly say this by way of introduction, that catechism preaching is not the preaching of the Word of men. Granted, we will look at the text of the catechism. But ultimately, catechism preaching is the preaching of the Word of God. Except that in catechism preaching, we approach the Word of God thematically. And when I preach on a text, we focus on that particular text. A very nice analogy that's not original with me is this, that in the preaching, we need to focus on the individual trees of the forest, But we also need to focus on the whole forest. We need to focus on how the individual trees fit in the whole forest. So when we expound individual passages, then we're looking at the individual trees. When we preach the catechism, we are preaching Scripture, but we're looking at the whole forest. We get the whole picture of how the Word of God so marvelously fits together. Another analogy that's helpful is that when we preach on a text, we use the the zoom lens approach. We zoom in on a specific text. When we preach the catechism, we use the wide-angle approach so that we get the picture. But that's enough said for tonight. I hope to address this in a bit more detail next week, the Lord's willing. And so this opening question really serves as an introduction to the entire content of what the Heidelberg Catechism will unpack for us. And as a minister, when you face this question, or you face and deal with the exceedingly rich content of this particular Lord's Day, you have to remind yourself that the rest of the catechism ultimately will fully expound it. I remember my father telling me once that he knew of a minister who preached 60 sermons on Lord's Day 1. Now, that's obviously not the idea. And so, I want to be precise in highlighting what is articulated for us in this amazing opening question, a question the content of which has been to the comfort of God's children throughout the ages. And so the theme of this Lord's Day, of this question, is very obvious. And it's defined by the question, the only comfort in life and death. And that word only is very important. In other words, what that question implies, as we will see in a moment, there is no other comfort except this comfort. And what is the only comfort in life and death? First of all, to know that Jesus Christ owns me, to know that I belong to Him, to know that I am His property. Secondly, to know that this Christ has redeemed me fully and completely and preserves me in that salvation. And thirdly, that this Christ, by the indwelling of His ministry of His Holy Spirit, assures me of that salvation which He has accomplished for us in the fullness of time. And so the Christian's only comfort in life and death, to be the property of Christ, to be redeemed by Christ, and to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And yet I have to admit immediately that the content of this is so rich that there are a number of other ways in which you can approach this. This question and answer is like a a diamond. When you have a, a beautiful diamond and you can look at it from so many different ways, there are so many angles to it. 
So another way in which you could look at the content is to see also, and I hope that you have recognized it, the Trinitarian structure of this answer. So you could say in this answer, the only comfort in life and death is to be redeemed by the Son, to be preserved by the Father, and to be assured by the Spirit. But we will simply follow the text of the Catechism and then obviously support that with Scripture itself, because that is the ultimate purpose and intent. The congregation, what, a, what an important question this is. It was an important question, certainly in the context of the time in which the Catechism was written, which was published, by the way, in 1563. When the Catechism was written, persecution was everywhere. So many of God's people had to pay with their lives because they confessed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Heidelberg itself, where Frederick III was the reigning uh, ruler of that Palatinate, uh, the Palatinate was torn asunder by doctrinal controversy. And Frederick III, a godly man, recognized the necessity of clearly defining for his people what the essential truths of the Word of God was. And so, some suggest that he actually is the author of this opening question, that this opening question is Frederick's own personal confession of his own faith. And so this question, what is the only comfort in life and death, was very, very real to many of the people of God. And many who were persecuted, many who were burnt at the stake, in a very real sense, experienced the comfort that is expressed so beautifully in this question and answer, which so beautifully um, articulates the foundational truths of the gospel. And it's a very personal question that's unique about the Heidelberg Catechism, is that all the way through, those personal questions are asked. What does this mean to you? How does this apply to you? And so my question tonight to you is, also in light of what happened this morning, is my dear congregation, my dear boys and girls, what is your only comfort in life and death? I once read that ultimately only a Christian, a Christian can peacefully go to sleep at night. I read it in an article, I don't remember the author, who set forth what he called the theology of sleep. Now, that might be somewhat unique, but he argued in that article that only a Christian who knows that he is reconciled with God through Christ only a Christian who knows that he is the beneficiary of what Christ has accomplished, only a Christian, therefore, ultimately can close his eyes peacefully at night, knowing that should he breathe his last breath while he is sleeping, he will open his eyes in glory. So, boys and girls, I want you to think about that. When you go to bed tonight, what would happen to you if, if you would breathe your last breath during that night? I know when you go to bed and your moms and dads, they bid you a good night, you are comforted by their presence. You are comforted by their love. You are comforted by the fact that you belong to them. But we need to know that we belong to Christ. For that is the only comfort in life with all of his difficulties and ultimately the only comfort in death. You know, that's what Asaph expressed so beautifully in Psalm 73, that remarkable psalm. At the end of Psalm 73, he says this, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my porch, of my heart. And here he said that 
and my portion forever. That's it. That's, to, that's what we have to be able to confess. That God is my portion forever. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 146 verse 5, Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. And that brings us again, as we will see in this answer too, that brings us again to those personal pronouns. As I said to you before, Luther famously said that true religion is a matter of personal pronouns. What is, not only what is the only comfort in life and death, no, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Then the answer says that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That I do not belong unto my own, but that I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said that beautifully in Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, where he says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. A congregation, this is the essence of religion. This is the great goal of redemption, to bring us sinners into a personal relationship with God Himself in and through His only begotten Son. Because that's how God created us. God created us, not only in His image, but He created us to be in a love relationship with Himself. God created us to be His children and for Him to be our Father. So when God created Adam, Adam could truly say that with his body and soul, he belonged to the God who created him. Adam's happiness was defined by that amazing love relationship between his maker and himself. And God created Adam in his image with the unique faculties to be able to enjoy that amazing love relationship. God gave Adam the faculty of knowledge to enable him to know his Maker. He gave him the faculty of righteousness to have a personal, intimate relationship with his Maker, a love relationship, and with the faculty of holiness to serve his Maker, to have his entire life to be focused on his Maker. So to put it very simply, and that's something I hope the children can remember. Let me put it very simple, boys and girls. God created Adam with the ability to know his maker, to love his maker, and to serve his maker. And that's the purpose for which we were created. And when we fell in Adam, Adam did not just lose God's image. He did not just lose paradise. When we fell in Adam, we lost God Himself. That's the worst part of our fall. That's what makes man so profoundly miserable. We were created to find our purpose and our happiness in the God who made us. And in Adam, we believed the lie, that dreadful misrepresentation of God's character. And ever since that day, Man has become a profoundly miserable and wretched creature. And life has now become a life void of comfort. And we see men and women in desperate search after comfort, to find comfort in all kinds of things. And we live in an extraordinary time 
A time of extraordinary creature comforts unlike any other generation has known before. And yet, what we see increasingly, how bankrupt our culture is. Because congregation, ultimately, we cannot find comfort in things. We cannot find the comfort in anything this life has to offer. It will leave us empty. The only comfort that is to be found is to be found in God Himself. And so the amazing thing is that God gave His only begotten Son as a sacrifice for sin to bring us sinners back into an everlasting love relationship with Himself. And so in Christ, God unites us again to Himself. In Christ, that broken covenant relationship, that relationship is restored. That's why Christ is referred to as the restorer of the breach. And this is the rich privilege of the people of God. If by the grace of God we have embraced this Savior by faith, if by the grace of God we are united to this Christ, that means that in Christ we are reunited with God. It's interesting that our word religion comes from a Latin word which literally means to be reconnected. Our word ligament is derived from it. Ligaments which connect our bones, our structure. And so true religion, true religion is that message that proclaims to us how we can be reunited with our Maker. And all of that is accomplished in Christ. And so what a privilege, what a privilege it is to be reconciled with God. If we sat at the table this morning, we thereby professed our faith in that Christ, evidently set before us in the broken bread and in the shed wine. We thereby confessed that He is our only hope and expectation. We ultimately confessed that we no longer belong to ourselves, but that with body and soul we belong to that Christ who gave himself as a ransom. That's why Paul begins Romans 12 by saying that it is our reasonable service to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Christ who gave himself for us. This is what Paul expresses when he writes to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 23, he says, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So Paul is saying, if we are united to Him, if we belong to Him, if by faith there is a real living union between Christ and us, we ultimately belong to God Himself. Because if we are Christ, Paul says, then we belong to God because Christ is God's. That's why Paul makes this bold statement at the end of Romans 8, as we pointed out already this morning. He says, therefore, he says, I am persuaded that absolutely nothing, and he makes this long list, we read it together, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Congregation, to know that to know that that is my portion. That is something I can live with, and that is something that I can die with. That's what we need to know when the moment comes that you and I have to breathe our last breath. We need to know that we belong to this Christ. What is it that this Christ has accomplished for us? Well, it says, with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. And of course, we hear the echo here of 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, where Peter writes, For as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And dear believer, this is what Christ has done for you. This is what he has communicated this morning by means of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in a very personal way, by handing you the bread, by giving you the wine. He has said to you, my dear child, I have done that for you. This is my body which is broken for you. I have shed my blood for you with my blood, with my precious blood. I have made full satisfaction for all of your sins. What a glorious truth that is all of your sins. And God forbid that we would live below our privileges. Dear child of God, if by the grace of God you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what is true for you, that means that all of your sins are blotted out by that precious blood of Christ because that's precisely what he has accomplished. And how precious is that blood? Not only is that blood precious to us, but that blood is so very precious to God himself. Because that blood has infinite value. It is the blood of God's only begotten Son. And that's why that blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That's why the blood of bulls and goals, of, of, of goats and of sheep and of bulls, that blood could not ultimately accomplish anything. It had to be repeated over and over again. But this blood, the blood that Christ shed, is precious blood. It is blood that is of infinite value. And if when that blood covers us, that blood covers us completely. That blood covers our whole life. That blood covers all of our sins. That's the privilege. That's what Christ has accomplished. And what's so comforting, congregation, that God the Father always sees that blood. Those words are so precious from Exodus 12 when God says, when I see the blood. Not when you see it, but when, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What a comfort that is. Dear people of God, your heavenly Father always sees that blood. Always. And He alone knows the true value of that blood. He alone knows how precious that blood is. We often lose sight of that blood. And then we lose our comfort, you see. Then the Holy Spirit has to bring us back and refocus us on the gospel. But the foundation, the unmovable foundation of our salvation is in the fact that the Father always sees that blood, always sees that precious blood of His Son. And so when we may see it by faith, and hopefully you were able to do that this morning, when we may see it, we experience the comfort of that blood. But the security of our salvation is in the fact that He sees that blood and delivered me from all the power of the devil. So, in other words, Christ as your Savior not only has delivered you from sin, from the curse of sin, the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, and all of its consequences, but even from the power of the devil itself. What a comfort to know that the devil who never ceases to be the accuser of the brethren, who never ceases to find ways to attack the people of God, what a comfort to know that he is a defeated enemy, an enemy that will never prevail. For this purpose, 1 John 3 verse 9, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2 verse 15, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so Christ is a complete Savior, a Savior who saves to the uttermost, a Savior who has accomplished a complete redemption, who has dealt with sin and all of its consequences, and who by His sacrifice has defeated the devil, the archenemy of God and of His people, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. What a beautiful truth that is as well. And so preserves me. In other words, dear believer, your Savior has not only secured your salvation and has done so completely, which is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of over and over again. But He preserves you in that salvation. And why is that so precious? Why is that so comforting? I think if you have any self-knowledge, you will know if we ultimately were left to fend for ourselves, we would yet lose that salvation. We would yet perish. That's what I've been trying to explain to you by way of, of Psalm 23, that sheep without a shepherd perish. The shepherd was always engaged to keep his sheep, to feed his sheep, to nourish them, and to protect them from self-destruction. And many a sheep would have perished were it not for the loving intervention of the shepherd. That's expressed here. So preserves me. What a comfort that is. That's why I already alluded to it this morning is that we have a Savior who is now, as your exalted Savior, at the right hand of the Father, who is actively engaged. He was actively engaged while He was here on earth, actively engaged in securing your salvation. But now, as your exalted Savior at the Father's right hand, He is actively engaged in preserving that salvation. And how does He preserve that? He preserves it by His intercession, His unbroken intercession. We have a Savior, dear people of God, who ever lives to make intercession for you. A Savior who, who is uninterruptedly presenting Himself to the Father as your representative. So that as the Father beholds His Son, He sees in His Son the faces of all of His children. He sees in His Son that whole multitude that He has redeemed by His sacrifice. And because of His presence, because of His intercession, dear believer, your salvation is absolutely secure. That's why Jesus said in John 10, verse 28 and 29, listen carefully, also I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And so this blessed supper this morning is not only to remind you of what the foundation of your salvation is, but to remind you that this Christ has now risen and is at the Father's right hand, and that that Christ who redeems you, that Christ who shed His precious blood for you, preserves you in that salvation. And that encompasses all of life. It says that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. And again, we hear the echo of God's Word. Luke 21, verse 18 where Christ says, but there shall not a hair of your head perish. Matthew 10, verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's an astonishing truth, because no person would ever be able 
to number his hairs. And yet Christ says, my heavenly Father has numbered your hairs. Christ is saying, your heavenly Father is completely involved in your life, in every aspect of it, every detail of it. So much so, not only that your hairs are numbered, but so much so that not one hair can even fall from your head without His will. What an amazing truth that is. Dear believer, that means you have a Savior who knows all things about you. Nothing escapes His attention. He knows about you. He knows about all of your circumstances. He knows about all the details of your life. He knows about all your trials. He knows about all your struggles. He is so completely involved in your spiritual well-being that even if a hair falls from your head, it has a purpose. And of course, the implication here is that the life of the Christian is not always a life of smooth sailing. On the contrary, many of God's children, the majority of them, have to deal with many afflictions. Afflictions that are necessary as part of God's plan and purpose to conform His people to the image of His Son. And that's implied in the next sentence. It says, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Romans 8, verse 28 and 29 are two of the most quoted verses of Scripture, sometimes quoted out of context, sometimes quoted by those who have no right to quote them, as if this applies to everyone, that when something goes wrong that we can say to that person, well, all things will work together for good. That's not what the text says. The text is very specific. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. And then he goes on to say, for we are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so, dear believer, not only have you been redeemed by the Son, but you have been redeemed for a purpose. You have been redeemed to become like the Son. So when God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, God's ultimate goal was not your salvation. That may sound like a strange statement to you. Much more than that, your salvation, your redemption in Christ is but a means to an end. God's overarching purpose the reason why He chose you in Christ and gave you to Christ to be redeemed by Christ is in order that you would become like Christ, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so all things must work together for that goal and for that purpose. And so in other words, dear believer, God's objective in your life is not your temporal prosperity, even though He does care for our daily needs, even though He does give us our daily bread. But God's overarching goal in your life is your salvation, your spiritual well-being. His goal is that you would prosper spiritually. His goal is that you would grow spiritually. His goal is that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of His Son. His goal is that you would increasingly begin to resemble His Son. That's what the Father delights in. The Father who loves His Son, His delight is when His people begin to resemble His Son. And that's why we have to die to ourselves. That's why our flesh has to be crucified. Because when we as children of God, when as believers, when we sin, we act to the very contrary of that. And how that grieves the Father, how that grieves the Holy Spirit. And that's why if we sin when we stray, 
He will chastise us. He will discipline us because His goal is our salvation. His goal is our spiritual well-being. His goal is to conform us to the image of His only begotten Son. That means ultimately every affliction, every trial, every cross that comes our way has been designed by God to precisely accomplish that purpose. And so the life of the Christian in that way, the life in which we die to ourselves. Turn with you, in, in your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, where the apostle powerfully describes that for us. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 11. Where Paul writes this, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And listen carefully. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So Paul is saying the reason why we are afflicted is so that we die to ourselves so that our flesh will be crucified and that increasingly we will begin to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, dear believer, you have been chosen in Christ to become like Christ. That's the goal of your redemption. And then finally, it says, And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He assures me also of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. How precious that Christ not only preserves me in that salvation, but that by His Spirit, His desire is to assure me of that salvation. That's the great work of the Spirit of Christ. Christ tells us in John 16 that when that Spirit would come, He said, that Spirit will glorify me, and that Spirit will take out of me and will show it unto you. And the great goal of the Spirit of Christ is to glorify Christ in your heart and in your life. And the desire of that Spirit is that you as a believer would fully understand what you have in Christ. In other words, Christ wants you to experience that comfort in life and death in your very own soul. The Christ who gave Himself for you the Christ who became a curse so that you could be blessed, the Christ who knew no sin so that you could become righteous through Him is a Christ who desires you to know that not only, but who desires you to be assured of what He has accomplished for you. And so, congregation, let me again state clearly that the assurance of faith is not some unattainable goal, that the assurance of faith is not something that is only reserved for a very, very few of God's elite people. Nothing is further from the truth. The Spirit who has regenerated you, the Spirit who has quickened you, the Spirit who has cut you off from Adam and grafted you into Christ, that Spirit whose work it is to glorify Christ and to take out of Him and to show it unto us, that Spirit labors restlessly so that you will become assured of that salvation, assured of that comfort in your soul. He assures me of eternal life. Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's not just for a few. This is true for all of God's children. And the ministry of word and sacrament, what happened this morning, is a means whereby the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit by focusing on the finished work of Christ. 
whereby he witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. I've said already here before in this short time that I'm here, what parent, what parent would be satisfied if his adult child would come to him and still doubt your love? You would say, what have I done wrong? How have I failed to communicate my love to my child that after all these years, my child still doubts my love? And if that's true for us, it's infinitely more true of God. Dear people of God, your heavenly Father wants you to rejoice in that salvation. By His Spirit, He wants to assure you of your personal stake in what Christ has accomplished. He wants you to experience that comfort now. It's a comfort in life and a comfort in death. That's why we as ministers of the gospel have such a sacred responsibility to comfort God's people. Listen to those amazing words from Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double of all her sins. And then finally makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. What a beautiful statement. To live unto Him. If we have been chosen in Christ and have been given to Christ and redeemed by Christ and drawn to Christ and united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, then it should be self-evident that we have a sacred obligation to live unto that Christ. And that's why the Holy Spirit wants to assure God's people of their portion in Christ. Because only when we are assured of God's love in Christ towards me, does that make me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. And what a question of self-examination for me and for you. Oh, I ask you, you who partook of this supper this morning, as we go back into everyday life, is that your desire, as you reflect on what happened this morning, is that your desire to live unto Him? And so we are to live out of Him in order to live unto Him. That means that we live for His glory. But that's real congregation. What an antidote against sin. Oh, then when we are faced with temptation, if we then reflect on what happened this Sunday, what happened here this morning, when we reflect on who this Christ is and what He did for us, how we should then turn away from sin and say, how could I do this great evil and so offend the Savior who gave Himself as a ransom for me. Paul writes in Titus 2 verse 14, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And so may our reflection on the love of Christ communicated to us May that manifest itself, even in this coming week, by expressing our love for Him, by living unto Him. That is the great calling of the Christian, to live unto the Christ who has so graciously redeemed us. That's what it means, that I do not belong to myself, but that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. And so, my dear congregation, what is your only comfort in life and death? Do you belong with body and soul to this Christ? And does your life, does my life give evidence that we belong to this Christ, that we are united to Him. Oh, may God give us the grace 
to go back into the battlefield of life, to go back into the arena, to go back into a hostile world, looking to this Christ, leaning upon Him, abiding in Him, living out of Him, so that by His grace we may live unto Him. And if this Christ is not your portion, you are of all men most miserable. Because then you have no comfort. No comfort in life, and you have no comfort in death. And if that's still true for you, I urge you to seek this Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That in the gospel, God offers that comfort to sinners like you and me. Freely, unconditionally promising the vilest of sinners that if they come to His Son, if we believe in His Son, if we embrace Him by faith, that God will freely give us all of these things. And so, dear people of God, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, with which I want to close. Remember, Paul says, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank Thee so much for the testimony of Thy Word, also articulated so clearly and so powerfully in the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And Lord, we pray that we would reflect on what we have heard. The question has been asked to me and to the congregation, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And Lord, give us no rest unless we are able to say that I no longer belong to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully satisfied for all my sins, who has purchased me with the price of His precious blood. And Lord, grant by grace that we may live in the enjoyment of that salvation. O blessed Holy Spirit, so work in us that we may be assured of that salvation, and that so we may be sincerely willing and ready to live unto the Christ who has so graciously redeemed us. And so go with us then in this new week. Wilt thou bless the labor of our hands? Wilt thou keep and protect us? Be with our children as they return to the classroom. Wilt thou be mindful of them as well? And we pray that in their young life, they too may receive that only comfort in life and death to belong to Christ. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.